Chapter 17, Parts 4 and 5 of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2, by John Bagnell Burry. Chapter 17, Parts 4 and 5. Section 4. Preparations for Alexander's Persian Expedition. Condition of Persia. Having spent the winter in making his military preparations, and setting in order the affairs of his kingdom for a long absence, Alexander set forth in spring for the conquest of Asia. Of his plans and arrangements we know almost nothing, but we may say with confidence that his scheme of conquest was well considered, and that he did not go forth as an adventurer to take whatever came in his way. His original scheme of conquest was afterwards merged in a second and larger scheme, of which he had no conception when he went forth from Macedonia, for he had not the requisite geographical knowledge of Central Asia. But in the first instance his purpose was to conquer the Persian kingdom, to dethrone the great king and take his place, and to do unto Persia what Persia under Xerxes had essayed to do unto Macedonia and the rest of Hellas. To carry out this design, the first thing needful was to secure Thrace in the rear, and that had already been done. In the conquest itself, there were three stages. The first step was the conquest of Asia Minor. The second was the conquest of Syria and Egypt. And these two conquests, preliminary to the advance on Babylon and Susa, would mean not merely acquisitions of territory, but strategic bases for further conquest. The weak point in Alexander's enterprise was the lack of a fleet capable of coping with the Persian navy, which was 400 strong. Here the confederacy of Corinth should have come to his help. Athens alone could have furnished over 200 galleys, and Alexander doubtless counted on obtaining the support of Athens and other Greek cities ultimately but he desired aid rendered with good will, and he made no effort to extort ships or men. The loosely organized League of Corinth had undertaken to supply fixed contingents, but the fulfillment of these promises were not strictly exacted. To secure Macedonia against her neighbors and subjects during his absence, Alexander was obliged to leave a large portion, perhaps as much as one half of the national army behind him. The government was entrusted to his father's minister, Antipater. It is said that the king made dispositions before his departure as one who expected never to return. He divided all his royal domains and forests and revenues among his friends, and when Perdiccas asked what was left for himself, he replied, Hope. Then Perdiccas, rejecting his own portion, exclaimed, We who go forth to fight with you need share only in your hope. The anecdote at least illustrates the enthusiasm with which Alexander infected his friends and officers on the threshold of a venture of which the conception was almost as wonderful as its success. The Persian Empire was weak and loosely knit, and it was governed now by a feeble monarch. Two generations had passed since Greece beheld its weakness memorably demonstrated by the adventures of Xenophon's Ten Thousand, and since then we have seen it on the western side, rent and riven by revolts. Artaxerxes Ochus displayed more strength than his predecessors. He re-established his power in Asia Minor. 
he quelled rebellions in Phoenicia and Cyprus, and even conquered Egypt, which had long set at naught the Persian efforts to regain it. The king, Nectanobos, was driven back from Pelusium to Memphis, and from Memphis he fled to Ethiopia. The Persian king had no thought of holding the land of the Nile by kindness. As soon as he had Memphis in his power, he displayed the intolerance of the fire-worshipper. He drowned the holy bull Apis, and inaugurated the ass as the sacred animal of Egypt. This stupid outrage made the Persian rule more detested than ever. Ochus was assassinated, the victim of palace conspiracy, and after two or three years of confusion, the throne passed to a distant member of the Achaemenid house, Darius Codomanus, destined to be the last successor to his great namesake. He was a mild and virtuous prince, beloved by his followers, but too weak, both in brains and will, for the task to which fate had doomed him. It cannot be gainsaid that, if Darius had been able and experienced in war, and capable of leading men, he had some enormous advantages. In the first place, he had the advantage in the sheer weight of human bodies. Had the myriads which he could muster been divided into troops of thirty men, and a soldier of Alexander's army allotted as a cup-bearer to each troop, many a company would have gone unserved. In the second place, while the coffers of Pella are said to have been emptied before Alexander set foot in Asia, the great king commanded untold wealth. The treasury of Susa was full, and in the palace of Persepolis were hoarded inexhaustible stores of gold. In the third place he had a navy which controlled the seaboard of Asia Minor, Syria, and Egypt, and ought, if it had been handled ably, to have placed insuperable obstacles in the way of an invader who had no adequate sea power. And fourthly, although there was no cohesion in the vast empire or unity of centralization, there was, for that very reason, little or no national discontent in the provinces. Egypt was an exceptional case. The revolts which occurred from time to time were not national movements, but the disaffections of ambitious satraps. If the Persian monarch was not loved, at least he was not hated, and the warlike barbarians of the east, from far Hyrcania, or the banks of the Oxus, were always ready to follow him and glad to fight in his cause. It was quite feasible, so far as the state of feeling in the provinces was concerned, to organize an effective defense of the empire. But all these advantages were as naught for lack of a mastermind and a controlling will. Multitudes were useless without a leader, and money could not create brains. Moreover, Persia was behind the age in the art of warfare. She had not kept pace with the military developments in Greece during the last fifty years, and, though she could pay Greek mercenaries, and though these formed, in fact, a valuable part of her army, they could have no effect on the general character of the tactics of an oriental host. The Persian commanders had no notion of studying the tactics of their enemy, and seeking new methods of encountering them. They had no idea of shaping strategic plans of their own. They simply waited on the movements of the enemy. They trusted, as they had always trusted, with perfect simplicity in numbers, individual bravery, and scythe-armed chariots. The only lesson which the day of Cunaxa had taught them was to hire mercenary Greeks. The strength of the army which Alexander led forth against Persia is said to have been 30,000 foot and 5,000 horse, thus preserving the large proportion of cavalry to infantry, which was one of the chief novelties of Philip's military establishment. We have seen how Philip organized the national army of Macedonia in the chief divisions of the phalanx, 
the light infantry, or hypastis, and the heavy cavalry. Alexander led to Asia six regiments of the phalanx, and, in the great engagements which decided the fate of Persia, these formed the center of his army. They were supported by Greek hoplites, both mercenary and confederate. The mercenaries were commanded by Menander, the confederate by Antigonus. The Hypastus, led by Nicanor, son of Parmenio, had their station on the right wing, and the first regiment of these was the royal guard, called the Aegima. Philotus, another son of Parmenio, was commander of the heavy cavalry, and eight squadrons, one of which, the royal squadron, under Clytus, corresponded to the Aegima of the light-armed foot. This Macedonian cavalry was always placed on the right, while on the left rode the splendid Thessalian cavalry under Callus, with a corps of other Greek horse attached. Both the right and left wings were strengthened by light troops, horse and foot, accruited according to their national habits from Thrace, Paeonia, and other countries of the Illyrian Peninsula. Section 5. Conquest of Asia Minor the forces which had been operating in Asia under Parmenio while Alexander was detained in Europe had been endeavoring to establish a footing in Aeolus and Mysia and secure a base on the Propontis for further advance. The great king had empowered Memnon of Rhodes, an able mercenary captain who in recent years had come to the front to oppose the van of the Macedonian invasion. The most pressing need of the Persians was to recapture Cyzicus, which was in the hands of Parmenio. In this Memnon failed, but he occupied Lampsacus, he forced the Macedonians to raise the siege of Pitani, and beat them back to the coasts of the Hellespont. But he could not, or did not, press his advantage, and the shores where Alexander's host would land were safe in the Macedonian possession. The fleet transported the army from Cestus to Abydus, while Alexander himself proceeded to Elaios, where he offered a sacrifice on the tomb of Protestelaios, the first of the mythical Greeks who landed on the shore of Asia in the Trojan War, and the first who fell. Praying that he might be luckier than Prostestelaeus, Alexander sailed across to the harbor of the Achaeans, and, in the mid-strait, made libations to Poseidon and the Nereids from a golden dish. The first to leap upon the Mysian strand, he crossed the plain of Troy and went up to the hill of Ilion, where he performed a sacrifice in the temple of Athena in the poor town which stood on the ruins of six prehistoric cities. It is said that he dedicated his own panoply in the shrine, and took down from the wall some ancient armor, preserved there as relics of the war of Priam and Agamemnon. He sacrificed to Priam to avert his anger from one of the race of Neoptolemus. He crowned the tomb of Achilles his ancestor, and his bosom friend Hephaestion cast a garland upon the grave of Patroclus, the beloved of Achilles. He commanded that Ilion should raise again from its ruins as a favored city enjoying the rights of self-government and immunity from taxation. These solemnities on the hill of Troy are significant in revealing the spirit which the young king carried into his enterprise. They show how he was imbued with Greek scriptures and Greek traditions, how his descent from Achilles was part of his life, part of his inspiration, how he regarded himself as chosen to be the hero of another episode in the drama, whereof the first act had been illustrated by the deeds of that glorious ancestor. Meanwhile, the satraps of the great king had formed an army of about 40,000 men to defend Asia Minor. 
if he had entrusted the command to the Rhodian Memnon, it is possible that some effective defense might have been made. But he committed the characteristic blunder of a Persian monarch, and consigned the army to the joint command of a number of generals, including Memnon and several of the western satraps. The Persian commanders were jealous of the Greek, and, against his advice, they decided to risk a battle at once. Accordingly, they advanced from Zelia, where they had mustered, to the plain of Adrastia, through which the river Granicus flows into the Propontis, and posted themselves on the steep left bank of the stream, so as to hinder the enemy from crossing. Alexander and his army advanced eastward from Abydus, and received the submission of Lampsicus, and there of Priapus, a town near the mouth of the Granicus. It was impossible for him to avoid the combat, which the Persians desired. He could not march southwards, leaving them in his rear. But he courted the combat even more than they, for the worst thing that could have befallen him, as Memnon knew well, was that the hostile army should persistently retire before him, eating up the provisions of the country as it retreated. With his heavy infantry in two columns, and his horse on the wings, Alexander marched across the Adrestian plain. The Persians had made the curious disposition of placing their cavalry along the river bank, and the Greek hoplites on the slopes behind. As cavalry in attack has a great advantage over cavalry in defense, Alexander saw that the victory could best be won by throwing his own squadrons against the hostile line. Parmenio advised him to wait till the following morning, and cross the river at daybreak before the foe were drawn up in array. I should be ashamed, said the king, having crossed the Hellespont, to be detained by a miserable stream like the Granicus. An answer such as Alexander loved to give, veiling under the appearance of negligent daring a self-confidence which was perfectly justified by his strategic insight. Drawing up his army in the usual way, which has been described above, with the six regiments of the phalanx in the center, entrusting the left wing to Parmenio, and commanding the right himself, Alexander first sent across the river his light cavalry to keep the extreme left of the enemy engaged, then led his heavy Macedonian cavalry against the Persian center. Alexander himself was in the thickest of the fight, dealing wounds and receiving blows. After a sharp melee on the steep banks, the Persian cavalry was broken and put to flight. The phalanx then advanced across the river against the Greek hoplites in the background, while the victorious cavalry cut them up on the flanks. This victory, in winning which Alexander drank to the full mad excitement of battle, cost few lives to the Macedonians, and cleared out of their way the only army which was to oppose their progress in Asia Minor. But it was very far from laying Asia Minor at the conqueror's feet. There were strong places which must be taken one by one, strong places on the coast which could be supported by the powerful Persian fleet. Of all things, the help of the Athenian navy would have best bestead Alexander now, and he did not yet despair. After the skirmish of the Granicus, when he divided the spoil, he sent three hundred Persian panoplies to Athens, as an offering to Athena on the Acropolis, with this dedication. Alexander, son of Philip, and the Greeks, except the Lacedaemonians, from the barbarians of Asia. But Athens had no zeal for the cause of the Greeks, and Alexander, against the barbarians. The victor entrusted the satrapy of Hellespontine Phrygia to Callus, making no change in the method of the Persian administration, and marched southwards to occupy the satrapy of Lydia and the rock of Sardis, girt with its threefold wall. 
It was a little more than two hundred years since Cyrus had overthrown the Lydian kingdom, and Sardis had become the chief burg of Persian power in the west. The citadel was strong and capable of a stout defense, but it was now passed with its treasures unresistingly into the hands of the great conqueror. For this prompt submission the Lydians received their freedom, and the ancestral constitution, which had been suspended during the long period of Persian domination. Alexander resolved to build a temple to the Olympian zoos on the citadel. It was said that a thunder shower falling on the site of the royal palace showed him the fitting place for the sanctuary, the spot where a more famous thunder shower had quenched the pyre of the last Lydian king. Parmenio's brother, Asander, was appointed satrap of Lydia, and Alexander turned to deal with the Ionian cities. Here, as was to be expected, everything depended on the strength of the political parties. The Democrats welcomed the Greek deliverer, but the oligarchs supported the Persian cause, and wherever they were in power, admitted Persian garrisons. In Ephesus, the oligarchy had got the upper hand, but on the approach of Alexander's army, the garrison left the city, and the people began to massacre the oligarchs. Alexander pacified these troubles and established a democratic constitution. He abode some time in the city, and during this sojourn the painter Apelles executed a famous picture of the king, wielding lightning in his hand, which was set up in the temple of Artemis. The next stage in the advance of Alexander was Miletus, and here for the first time he encountered resistance. The Persian garrison was commanded by a Greek, who had first meditated surrender, but learning that the Persian fleet was at hand in full force, decided to brave a siege. In an earlier episode of the struggle between Europe and Asia, we witnessed memorable operations in the Latmian Gulf and the Milesian harbors, which the retreat of the sea has blotted from the map. The Isle of Lade, then associated with the triumph of Asia, was now to play a part in the triumph of Europe. The Macedonian fleet of 160 galleys sailed into the bay and occupied the harbor of Lade, before the great fleet of the enemy had arrived. When the Persian vessels came and saw they had been forestalled, they anchored off the promontory of Mycale. The city of Miletus consisted of two parts, an outer city which Alexander easily occupied as soon as he came up, and an inner city, strongly fortified with wall and fosse. Alexander threw up a rampart round the inner city, and placed troops in the island of Lade. Miletus was easily stormed by the Macedonian siege engines, and the fleet blocking the harbor hindered the Persian squadron from bringing help. Parmenio had urged the king to risk a battle on the water, though the enemy's ships were nearly three to one. But Alexander rejected the advice. He had judged the whole situation, and he had made up his mind that the Persian sea power would have to be conquered on land. If Athens had sent him naval reinforcements, it might have been otherwise. But he now despaired of active help from Greece, and he decided that it was a useless strain on his treasury to maintain 160 galleys, too few to cope with the 400 of the enemy. Accordingly, he disbanded the fleet after the fall of Miletus, and proceeded to blockade the sea by seizing all the strong places on the shores of the eastern Mediterranean. The execution of this design occupied him for the next two years, but it brought with it the conquest of Asia Minor, Syria, and Egypt. The manifest objection to the dissolution of the naval force was that, in case of a decisive defeat at the hands of the great king, should compel him to retreat, he would have no fleet to transport his army from Asia to Europe, 
and the fleets of the enemy, by occupying the straits at either end of the Propontis, could entirely cut him off. But Alexander trusted his own strategy. He knew that he would not be compelled to retreat. As for Asia Minor, the next and the hardest task was the reduction of Caria and the capture of Halicarnassus. The remnant of the host which fled from the Granicus and the Rhodian Memnon himself had rallied here and rested their last hopes in the strong city of Mausolus with its three mighty citadels. The great king had now entrusted to Memnon the general command of the fleet and the coasts, and Memnon had dug a deep fosse round Halicarnassus, furnished the place with food for a long siege, and placed garrisons in the smaller neighboring towns. Halicarnassus was to be the center of a supreme resistance. There had once been a chance that Alexander himself might have been, by a personal right, lord of Halicarnassus. The prince Pixodarus, one of the brothers of Mausolus, had wished to form an alliance of marriage with the house of Macedon, and Alexander had thought of offering himself as a bridegroom for his daughter. But Philip would not hear of such a match, and Pixodorus had given the maiden to a Persian noble, who had succeeded to the dynasty after his father-in-law's death. There was indeed another claimant to the dynasty, Ada, wife and sister of Idrieus. She had succeeded her husband as ruler, and had been driven out by her brother Pixodarus. She now sought the protection of Alexander, and when he captured Halicarnassus, he assigned to her the satrapy of Caria. It was destined that women should represent Caria in the two great collusions of Greece with Persia. In the days of Alexander, as in the days of Xerxes, the submission of Ada atoned for the bravery of Artemisia. Having made a futile attack on Mindus, Alexander filled up the moat with which Memnon had encompassed Halicarnassus, and brought his towers and engines across the walls. A breach was made on the northeast side, near to the gate of the road to Malaysia, but Alexander, who hoped to induce the town to surrender, forbore to order an attack. His hands were almost forced by two soldiers of the phalanx, who, one day, drinking together in their tent, and bragging of their prowess, flushed with wine and the zeal of rivalry, put on their armor and marched up to the wall, challenged the enemy to come out. The men on the wall, seeing them alone, rushed out in numbers, and the twain were hard-pressed, till their comrades came to the rescue, and there was a sharp fight under the walls. But even now Alexander would not order an attack on the breach, and the besieged built a new crescent wall, connecting the two points between which the wall had been broken down, and maintained themselves behind it for a time. At length, they made a great excursion against the camp of the besiegers at two different places. On both sides they were driven back. In confusion, and in their haste to shut the gates, they left many of their fellows to perish. At this moment an assault would doubtless have carried the Macedonians within the walls. But Alexander gave the signal to retire, till, still intent on saving the city, Memnon saw that the prospect of holding out longer was hopeless, and he determined to withdraw the garrison to the citadel of Salmacus, and the royal fortress on the island in the harbor. He fired the city at night before he withdrew, and the place was in flames when the Macedonians entered. Alexander destroyed what the fire spared, and left a body of mercenary soldiers under Ptolemy to blockade Salmacus and to support the princess of Caria. The cold season was approaching, and Alexander divided his army into two bodies, one of which he sent under Parmenio to winter in Lydia, while he advanced with the other into Lycia. 
he gave leave to a few young officers who had been recently wedded to return to their Macedonian homes, charging them with the duty of bringing reinforcements to the army in spring, and appointing Gordian in Phrygia as the mustering place of the whole host. Alexander met with no resistance from the cities of the Lycian League, and he left the constitution of the Confederacy intact. From the rich frontier town of Phycelus, he advanced along the coast of Pamphylia, receiving the submission of Perge and Espendus and other maritime cities, and then he turned inland from Perge and fought his way over the Pisidian hills, taking with some trouble Segalasus, the chief fastness of the Pisidian mountaineers. He descended to Salinae, the strong and lofty citadel of the Phrygian satrapy, and leaving a garrison there, he marched on to Gordian, on the Sangrius, the capital of the ancient kingdom of Phrygia. While he was winning the Lycian and Phrygian satrapies, he lost, for the moment, some points on the Aegean. Memnon, appointed commander of the Persian fleet, had taken Chios, reduced the greater part of Lesbos, and laid siege to Mytilene. He died during the siege, but Mytilene soon surrendered, and then Tenedos was compelled to recognize the peace which the king sent down. The great danger for Alexander was that these successes might encourage the Greeks to revolt, and ten Persian ships sailed as far west as Sphinos for the purpose of exciting a movement in Hellas. But eight of these vessels were captured by some Macedonian triremes, which ran over from Chalcis, and the project of a Greek rising was not carried out. At Gordian, the appointed mustering place, Alexander's army reunited, and the new troops arrived from Macedonia to replace those who had been left to garrison the subjugated countries and cities. On the citadel of Gordian stood the remains of the royal palaces of Gordius and Midas, and Alexander went up the hill to see the chariot of Gordius, and the famous knot which fastened the yoke. Cord of the bark of the cornel tree was tied in a knot, which artfully concealed the ends, and there was an oracle that he who should loose it would rule over Asia. Alexander vainly attempted to untie it, and then, drawing his sword, cut the knot, and so fulfilled the oracle. From Gordian, Alexander marched by Ankara into Cappadocia. Having received the submission of Paphlagonia, and asserted, rather than confirmed, his authority over the Cappadocian satrapy, he marched southward to Tiana, and the Cilician gates. It was well that Alexander should show himself for a moment in the center of Asia Minor, but the reduction of these wild regions and the southern coast of Pontus was a task which might safely be postponed. The Cilician gates might have been easily defended by the garrison which the satrap Arsimes had posted in the pass. Alexander, with the Hypastus and other light troops, leaving the rest of his army in camp, marched up at night to surprise the station. As soon as the guards heard the footfalls of the approachers, they fled, and then Alexander, at the head of his cavalry, moved so rapidly on Tarsus, that Arsimes, amazed at his sudden appearance, fled without striking a blow. Here a misadventure happened which well-nigh changed the course of history. After a long ride under a burning sun, the king bathed in the cool waters of the Sidnus, which flows through Tarsus. He caught a chill which resulted in violent fever and sleepless nights and his physicians despaired of his life. But Philip of Arcania, who was eminent for his medical skill, recommended a certain purgative. As he was preparing the draught in the king's tent, 
a letter was placed in Alexander's hands. It was from Parmenio, and it was warning against Philip, alleging that Darius had bribed him to poison his master. Alexander, taking the cup, gave Philip the letter to read, and, while Philip read, Alexander swallowed the medicine. His generous confidence was justified, and, under the care of Philip, he soon recovered from his sickness. End of chapter 17, parts 4 and 5